This is Cheryl Broderson. And Jasmine Allnut. I was waiting for you to do that. <laughs> and Jasmine, what are we doing today? Well, Cheryl, we're going to look at a woman worth knowing. And that woman <laughs> is Catherine Booth, part two. Yes, we are on part two of Catherine Booth. There was no way we could cram all that into no, one. Catherine Booth, again, for those of you who are just tuning in and maybe mm-hmm. haven't heard part one, you need to hear part one. But we're talking about um, Catherine Booth, who, along with her husband, William Booth, are the founders of the Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. And Catherine Booth is just so as believers, as, as women who, who love the Lord, she's just very impressive and mm. very inspiring and just a huge blessing for women who feel called to serve the Lord. Don't you think? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And she, you know, was willing to step mm-hmm. out and really kind of be a trailblazer in that area mm-hmm. for others who could, you know, follow and feel empowered. Like, I can serve too. Right. And in part one, we talked about how her health mm. was precarious. Mm. I mean, she had scoliosis. She had Crohn's disease. How she had passion from the time she was young. And at this point in Mm-hmm. Our story, Catherine has three children, right. and they're in serving in London at a mission. Right. They were at a mission. Yep. They were um, settled in. Well, kind of the Methodist connection kind of forced them to stop itinerant preaching mm-hmm. <laughs> and settle at a mission. And eventually they realized, mm, that's not what the Lord has us for us. He's, he wants to do something else with us. And so that's exactly where we left off, was them kind of leaving, I guess you'd say, the established church, launching out in faith. By the time they actually launched out and had faith, they had four kids. And then it was like, man, what, how are we going to—we're going to just have to live by faith. What are we going to do? Um, and yet the Lord provided every step of the way. So they start itinerant preaching, and uh, one of their stops was in East London. And William noticed when he was there uh, just how, I mean, pronounced the poverty and the squalor, I guess you would say, was that was around him. And at that very moment, God spoke to him, and he knew God wanted him to actually stay in East London. So it's interesting, even though they didn't like do church plants uh, or stay in a planted church or established church, they did uh, find a location that they wanted to start really ministering in. But as Cheryl kind of mentioned last episode, uh, it was to the poor, which was not okay with a lot of the uh, respectable denominations. And so that's what made this so unique. And not just the poor, but I mean, down and out oh, com- sinners. Yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. they were reaching out to prostitutes, prostitutes yep. and to drunks. Drunks, yeah. exactly. And uh, criminals. Yeah. I yeah. mean, they had no prejudices Mm-mm. against everybody needed Jesus. Yep. In fact, I was reading that Catherine was often asked to speak to wealthy women's groups. Oh, wow. And she would go and she would use that as an opportunity to get support for their Mm, mission. Love it. And to promote the salvation. And she would give a lot of testimonies Mm. of the women um, and the men who had gotten saved and how transformed their lives had become. And that's actually a really good point because sometimes you can swing the other way and be like, I'm all about the poor. And rich people, they just are so out of touch. I'm not going to go to them. She brought them in. She brought them in and made them feel a part of all God was doing. Mm, I love it. I love Mm -hmm. it. So that's exactly. So they were able to establish a mission, partly because of that. I remember reading that, that she had gone and kind of, like you said, was able to get some fundraising done and stuff. So in 1865, William and Catherine established East London Mission, or the Christian Mission. That was the original name, the the Christian Mission. William rented out a dance hall, and he and the new converts would clean it up on Saturday night at midnight after everybody got done dancing. And then he would just get up early in the morning and preach. So that's that was kind of their little routine. And you got to know, like, 
like at this time, I mean, this is again, the Industrial Revolution. East London is just a pit. One biographer said, a squalid labyrinth with half a million people, every fifth house was a gin shop, and most of them had special steps to help even the tiniest children reach the counter. So, I mean, little kids could go in and buy liquor. I mean, it was just like... I mean, there was no, that was the problem with the Industrial Revolution was that it was, um, it really was a revolution. Like it really uh, undermined the normal stra uh, social structure and economic structure because all these people are just flooding in from the countryside to work in the factories. Nobody was equipped or prepared to handle this. And so you find lack of regulations, which I'm going to get into when we talk about Elizabeth Fry later on down the and road. sanitation. Sanitation, Ugh. housing problems, mm -hmm. illiteracy, poverty, drunkenness, uh, homelessness, prostitution, you name it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it all was uh, happening. So much vice, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so it was just, and East London was where all of, that's where the Thames comes into the city. And so all the ships are coming in on the river and East London was the first stop where you'd have all the factories. It was the hub of the in, of industry there. And so it was kind of the armpit. In fact, and the reason I'm saying all of this is it. because my parents live in East London. <laughs> well, Isle of the Dogs. And they live in the Isle of Dogs, which is right where all of that was. In fact, my parents live in a converted mill. That's where, I mean, it oh, used to be a factory. Yes. And so- Well, Isle of Dogs was that because the dogs would prey on all the, the food and the, the vermin and they were wild. Oh, it was gross. It was so bad in that area, mm -hmm. honestly. It's really like, I guess they, they gentrified it in the last 30 years but or so. Where, but that's where um, dignified people, or what do you want to say? The gentry would never even go never. into because nope. lice and cholera and mm -hmm. all sorts of diseases were rampant. I mean, that's part yep. of what happens when you have squalor and overcrowding. Yes, exactly. It was a really, yeah, it wasn't even, it wasn't even just like, oh, I don't like the poor mm -hmm. people. It was dangerous because mm -hmm. of the health conditions and so many other problems there. And yet William and Catherine just felt like this is, these are our people. In fact, William took Bramwell with him one time to a, an event. There's like drunks and like women yelling and freaking out prostitutes. And he's just said, these are our people. This is who Jesus wants to say. And I love that. They just brought the kids in with them. I mean, you know, protected them, of course. But um, they stepped out in spite of opposition, constant opposition and oppression. Uh, one author said, uh, you have this delicate, ill-educated man married to a very sick woman, as we've talked about. He stood by himself on mile-end waste and was pelted with garbage by the drunkards who reeled out of their gin palaces to deride and mock them. And you were mentioning that before we started the podcast, how people would throw food at them. And, you know, Catherine, because she's a woman trying to preach and speak, people are making fun of her. But the same thing happened with Wesley. Mm -hmm. When Wesley was preaching all over England, he was pelted with rocks. At one place, these drunks beat him up and left him for dead. <sighs> and a lot of the um, Catherine Booth and a lot of the women who later became the Salvation Army were often assaulted mm. when they would go um, yeah. to places yeah. and these to minister. Yeah, yeah. Because you're dealing with unruly people and people that aren't in their right Sinners, mind. Right. Yeah, exactly. Another thing with their health, you know, like we were talking about before, she had scoliosis, Crohn's, all of that. At one point, she almost died from dysentery. There was another time, William, he had these recurring bouts of typhoid that almost killed him. They were both in constant pain. They weren't in perfect shape. No. <laughs> in order weren't. to minister. They weren't. But they persevered to minister in spite of, because mm. often people think, oh, if I'm in the will of God, everything's wonderful. Mm. Everybody will accept me. Everybody will love me. And I won't go through any persecution. But mm. the opposite is true. Absolutely. You know, Paul said, anyone who endeavors to live a godly life will 
suffer persecution. In fact, persecution is often the sign that you are in the will of God, not the sign that you're out of the will of God. Oh my goodness, totally. Mm -hmm. That is so true. In fact, there's more to that. And I'm glad you said that because, you know, not only were they dealing with health issues, but, uh, you know, they have obviously the kids, they have financial burdens. And then Catherine started struggling with depression. Mm -hmm. William did as well because of uh, sometimes, you know, if you're going through a lot of physical pain and issues, it's natural that you're starting to also, you know, struggle with depression and emotional trauma. And I love the, and I think we touched on this in our previous episode, how honest they were. Right. Um, And she was very honest, open and vulnerable about her struggles with depression. And here's something she wrote. And I thought, wow, this, maybe somebody listening to this can relate. She said, I know I ought not to be depressed. I know it dishonors the Lord, but I can't help it. I've struggled hard more than anyone knows for a long time against it. And then later she said, my soul seems dumb before the Lord. A horror of great darkness comes over me at times, but in the midst of it all, I believe he will do all things well. In a time when something like clinical depression would not be diagnosed, they wouldn't necessarily even know what to call that. Here she is struggling and walking through this dark place. But I love how this goes to show, like she said, she believed God would do all things well. That God, And he did. You know, God is greater that as deep as we can sink, we can always know that underneath are the everlasting arms. Everything I've read about people who struggle with depression, I just am always reminded of that verse. Like you might feel like you're sinking so low. But like Deuteronomy 33 says, underneath are the everlasting arms. They're never going to fail you. And so she came to realize and recognize that in her battle with depression. In spite of these struggles and health issues, the Booths were compelled to go on. William told his wife, he said, he came home one night and he's like, I seem to hear a voice sounding in my ears. Where can you go and find such heathen as these? Where is there so great a need for your labors? And so, I mean, they just were compelled and all in. And they really believed that practical ministry to the poor, the destitute, the working class would really pave the way for evangelism and spreading the gospel because that was the ultimate goal. And as William put it, they had the three S's. They had soup, soap, and salvation. That's what they <laughs> they wanted to bring to everybody. We're going to give them food. We're going to clean them up, help them, and then we're going to lead them to Jesus. And so uh, one really cool example of their practical ministry, this is one of the stories that I loved, had to do with a major health concern for working girls in the match factories. When they would make matches, they used to use, I don't know if they, they probably don't do this anymore, but they used to use phosphorus. Phosphorus is a pretty toxic chemical, but of course, again, this is the Industrial Revolution. Nobody's really thinking about protection for workers or toxicity of chemicals. When Madame Curie discovered radium, they started using radium to make glow-in-the-dark watches, not realizing they were exposing everyone to radiation. So they just didn't understand these things. And so what happened was in these match factories, these girls are starting to develop, as they're working in this environment, something called Fossy Jaw. Um, Basically, the phosphorus that was used for the matches would deposit itself in their jaws, in their mouth. You know, they're breathing it in. It's going into their um, jaws and depositing there. And so you have these girls starting to just have their faces basically fall off and erode. Their teeth are all, you know, if you look at pictures of Fossy Jaw, you might not want to look. It's kind of gross. But I mean, it's just horrific what happened. They're so disfigured from working in these factories. It was so sad. And so what does William Booth do? He said, no, I don't care how much it costs. We're going to start building factories that are phosphorus-free for these girls to work in. And I love that. He didn't just say, don't work anymore. He's like, no, we want you to work and earn a living, but we want you to do it in a safe and healthy environment. Getting them out of that bad environment, showing they loved them and cared, 
paved the way for an opportunity to share the gospel. In another instance, and we kind of touched on this, they started ministering to homeless girls and rescuing them from becoming prostitutes. And Bramwell was a little older now, and so he actually wrote a report about these conditions that the girls were living in and presented legislation on behalf of these girls. And that resulted in uh, the Criminal Law Amendment Act, which protected them. It had a lot of protections in it. This was actually a really big piece of legislation. It protected girls from being recruited into prostitution. It put a protection on all children under the age of 17. And I thought this was interesting. It made it a crime for men to solicit women so that they were both now equal under the law. Because up to this point, as we might have touched on before, prostitution was always considered the woman's fault. So the upper-class women who had husbands that went to prostitutes, oh, it's those fallen women and it's their fault. It has nothing to do with this man. He obviously had no choice. (laughs) It was just a way to try to... I justify, guess, justify excuse, and not have to think about right. it. Excuse, exactly. Like, as, as the upper class, it was so unheard of. So this was a really big deal now to kind of, again, promote protection for not just children, but for women in prostitution and stuff, and to try to get them out of that environment. So still just called the Christian Mission. It's growing leaps and bounds. It's having quite an influence. Uh, within 10 years, they had 1,000 volunteers and evangelists. And by 1870, they had opened up preaching stations. They opened up these things called ragged schools, which sounds like a unfortunate name, but it was just a place for poor kids to go to school. Lord Shaftesbury, I wish I could talk about him, but that's a man worth knowing. He was really a big force. He was kind of like the Booths, but he was in government, kind of like William Wilberforce, and he was able to enact a lot of legislation in protection of working class people, kids, and all that. They really both were involved in establishing ragged schools for underprivileged kids. Penny banks, soup kitchens, relief of the destitute and sick poor. They also uh, started a magazine called The War Cry. Their outreach method was very unique in that day. The leaders and the others in the mission, they'd march through town led by a cornet player, which is like a little mini trumpet, I think, right? It is. (laughs) (laughs) And they'd sing hymns and carry banners on their way to church. And so this kind of paved the way for a very distinctive feature of the ministry, which involved marching bands. They used marching bands all the time in their evangelistic services because that kind of music was really popular. This was around the time when, if you guys have heard of John Philip Sousa, he started writing marches over here in America and stuff like that. So that drew huge crowds. And then they would share the gospel and lead a bunch of people to Christ. Very unique. Well, in 1878, they were having a meeting for the Christian mission, and they're trying to define it. Like, okay, well, what what are we? And somebody said, well, the Christian mission is really like a volunteer army. And William thought about it, and he said, well, but we're not volunteers. We're regulars. And so he said, we're a salvation army. That's what we are. And so that was where the name came from. Uh, Later that year, he said, we are, and this is just their mentality, him and Catherine both, we are sent to war. We are not sent to minister to a congregation and be content if we keep things going. We're sent to make war and stop short of nothing but the subjugation of the world to the sway of the Lord Jesus. They just developed this whole, you know, military mindset for the ministry. And they started having the uniforms. Yes, talk about that. And one of the things with the uniforms was to get rid of all stratification. Mm -hmm. And you've got to remember that England was a very highly stratified place. You had your aristocracy. Yes. You had your upper middle class. You had your middle class. You had your lower middle class. And then you had your poverty, Mm -hmm. like abject poverty Mm -hmm. and your prostitutes and drunks. When people came to Christ, they wanted there to be no social stratification, that you couldn't tell where a person came from, but they were identified as part of the family of God. And they were all equals in the family of God. Love it. And I mean, that is just something so revolutionary for that time. 
so revolutionary. Exactly. It was practically, it wasn't quite like the Hindu caste system, but there was real strict, like you didn't even marry outside of your class. I mean, you're right. right. It was very stratified. But also that they so. would be recognized by the uniform as being part of the Salvation yes, Army. Yes, there was that too. And yep. the idea is like to be recognized as here's someone you can pray with. Here's someone who cares about you, mm. but here's somebody who belongs to a big family. Yeah. The family of God, the Salvation Army. Love it. And so it became, the uniform itself became evangelistic mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. often these people would be, you know, approached like, will you pray for us? I'm going through this situation or can I know God? Mm. So it was it was really an effective tool in that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because people would know, oh, the Salvationists are compassionate. Mm-hmm. They'll give me food if I'm That's down right. and out. Right. They will help me find mm-hmm. housing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's so good. I'm glad you mentioned that. And they were unique for that reason, big time. Uh, and, you know, for many reasons, obviously, like they said, the marching bands, the way they did their evangelistic outreach, uh, they had brought appeal to different Christian groups, regardless of denomination, because William and Catherine, they're convinced Methodists, but they loved Spurgeon, who was a Calvinist. They would preach at any place. Yep. They would preach they would in graveyards, <laughs> dance halls, as we yeah, mentioned before, yeah. bars. But I mean, not like when it was empty. But sometimes when it was full, they would go wherever they were invited and even in places they weren't invited, which also <laughs> was part of the reason that they got, you know, run out of places. Yeah, yeah. But there's a place in Harrogate where the Salvation Army had a very strong influence and so strong that you will find a scripture reference hmm. on the on the main thoroughfares. In Harrogate, oh, and that it. was because of the Salvation Army. And as Jasmine said, they began to set up these mission stations mm-hmm. in all these different major cities yes. yeah. of, of England. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, it went international from there. I think it's in 100 countries yes. today. Many of the missions were uh, like Evangeline Booth, their daughter, oh, yeah. is the one yeah. who brought it to Canada yeah. and then to the United States. So, so it's, it's like— yeah, awesome. it's, it begins to spread. It exactly. Uh, one other thing that was really cool about them, and I like that you mentioned, too, that they preached anywhere they were invited. I mean, they even, because of Catherine's speaking, she got connected with Catholics. I mean, so, yes. you know, they weren't they weren't discriminatory. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They're like, we, and, and if we're Everyone in Christ, Jesus. we can— Yes, exactly. Right. And so uh, one of the most unique qualities, of course, and, you know, we already kind of hinted at this, I think, through Catherine's speaking ministry, was the involvement of women. Um, Mm -hmm. That was really a big deal for the Salvationists. In fact, William, when he wrote up the orders and regulations for the Salvation Army, he said, women shall have the right to an equal share with men in the work of publishing salvation. And so Catherine really was the trailblazer, and she paved the way for a lot of other girls and women, middle, upper class, from whatever class, to say, I want to help, I want to serve. She would encourage others but when her own daughter, Katie, came to her and said, I, I I feel called to do it, she's like, oh, no, no, I don't think so. But part of it was because of the persecution that yeah. she herself suffered. So she kind of wanted to keep Katie from it. But her son, Bramwell, is like, Mom, what are you doing? And yeah. he challenged her just to pray about her attitude. Oh, I love it. And she went and she prayed. And the Lord really spoke to her to release Katie to do what she was called to do for the mm-hmm. sake of the organization. That's so cool. Because originally, even though they allowed their kids to be kind of like participants, they didn't want them, you know, to go through all that they had gone sure. through. But the kids all wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they did. And that's a natural parental kind of, like we were talking about with Catherine's mom being overprotective. Yes. You have those yes. natural instincts. But, you know, there's something about watching transformation. Yeah. There is just, you know, I grew up at a, a church 
Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa when it was in its infancy and watched transform lives. You know, we call it the Jesus People Movement or the hippies. Mm -hmm. But it was so incredible to hear the testimonies. And that was something that the booths incorporated into all their services. Yes. Was not only the preaching of the gospel, but also testimonies. Yeah. That they would have these ex-prostitutes and these ex-drunks and these ex-thieves and these ex-convicts all get up and talk about how Jesus had transformed them. And that also was so powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's huge. So it's neat because William and Catherine, you know, they were such a team. They made all their ministry decisions together. William called Catherine a counselor who in hours of perplexity and amazement has never failed. In fact, uh, one biographer said that no religious movement has ever been more the product of a husband-wife team than the Salvation Army. And I love it because it was all about, at the end of the day, the gospel first. And they'd use, like you said, those testimonies. Everything was geared towards bringing the gospel to people. And, and Catherine just lived by the word of God and said, "This is I regard this as the standard of all faith and practice our guide to live by. You know, there's another movement in the 1800s around this same time called the social gospel, uh, well, which was a form of Christian Marxism that wanted to fix problems problems in society, but never got to the heart of the matter, which is the need for salvation. And so the Salvation Army, these guys, they knew, they got it. They understood that, yes, we want to provide practical needs, but what these people really need is to know their value in the sight of God and to know they can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They were responsible for so much social justice yes. and reform. Yes, all these uh, things were added. Now, I read by the end of Catherine Booth's life, mm -hmm. there were some quarter of a million people that had been saved. Yeah. 250,000 by the end of her life mm. had met the Lord through the ministry of Catherine, of Catherine. Yeah. and William Beautiful. Booth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it just expanded from there. Right. Yeah. She actually did um, die after a battle. She had a battle with terminal cancer and she passed away October of 1890. It was so cute though, because over the, she, you know, she slipped away over a period of months, but she didn't lose her sense of humor. She said she felt like she was dying in a railway station because everybody's coming in night and day doing stuff for the, you know, for the army and Bramwell's coming in and mom, I need, you know. And so <laughs> it was just so cute. There was just this constant hustle and bustle. One writer said after she died, Catherine Booth, William's little wife, mother of his eight beauties, mother of the Salvation Army, mother of nations, had gone home. She had faced the last enemy and proved that in life and death, God is enough for us. And as we've kind of said, all their kids uh, went into ministry. Catherine was the glue that held everybody together. William was difficult, and some of it was his health problems. Because he was in constant pain, he could be really irritable. He didn't have the greatest relationship with all of his children. A lot of them, they stayed in ministry. They loved the Lord and carried on, but a lot of them kind of separated from the Salvation Army over the years as time went on. Again, these weren't perfect people. Right. But, um, you know, their daughter, well, you know, the one who kind of he began to lean on the most was his um, seventh daughter. Yes. <laughs> or seventh child, sorry, which was— Evangeline, mm -hmm. who you're going to talk about. Eventually. I'll talk about her in a week or so. But um, <laughs> one of the things that's interesting about Evangeline is that she didn't live near her father, though. <laughs> Maybe you that know? was part of the good. Yes. Yeah, that probably was a blessing. But <laughs> she took she took the ministry to Canada. Yeah, and worked she did. with the Salvation Army in Canada, and then she took over the United States. But two of the children, I think it was Bramwell. Mm -hmm. Forgive me if I get this wrong, but I think it was Bramwell and Evangeline that both became generals in the army. Yes, so there Bramwell was, a, was they did yeah. have a, a kind of a military leadership. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of used rankings and yes. names and titles like yes. that. So. But you didn't know what their past was, but they it was to give respect and order to, mm -hmm. to something, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's amazing, kind of like we've hinted before, it was all— 
um, from a young age, they were brought in. Like Ram- Bramwell started, he was put in charge of five. They had like these grocery stores for poor people to come get food. When he was uh, 16 years old, he got put in charge of these grocery stores. And he became the chief of staff for William at 20, later a general, like you said. And his daughter, Catherine Bramwell Booth, the granddaughter, she uh, eventually wrote biographies on these guys. Right. She wrote the first biography of Catherine Booth. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, and then Katie, who you mentioned before, she started street preaching at 16. She started the work in France when she was 22 Mm. in 1881. And then, of course, Evangeline, who you mentioned. But uh, it's cool. Evangeline started the work in Canada. But in the United States, I want to mention briefly just another gal who was a Salvationist, kind of as a little bonus here, because I think this is fun. And it, again, highlights the fact that young or old, male or female, they if they saw the call of God on someone, it was like, okay, go for it. There was a girl who actually started the Salvation Army in America, and her name was Eliza Shirley. Um, She was from Coventry, England and her dad was a pastor and she grew up loving the Bible and memorizing his sermons. And when she was 15, a group of Salvation Army women evangelists came to her town and she was so inspired. She decided, I'm going to dedicate my life to the Lord. I want to serve with them. In fact, she got up and spoke (laughs) spontaneously at one of these meetings and William Booth was there and he was so impressed. He invited her to come and work with them. Again, not worrying about the fact that she was so young. And her parents were involved. They had gotten involved. They appreciated the Salvation Army. So when she was 16, they let her go. But then the following year, um, in 1879, um, she's hanging out, joining with the army and working with this girl named Annie Allspop. I thought that was so cute. Uh, in a coal village, a coal mining village in England. And they were, you know, it was just a rough go. People threw food at them, but that was the food that they would eat because they were so poor wow. and didn't have anything. They were just living among the people. I, so she was very radical. And then her dad, later that same year, he uh, went to America to find work in Philly. And he said, you won't believe how many people here don't go to church. And so Eliza and her mom went to join him. And they they thought like, well, we want to bring Jesus to these people here in America. And so they start doing just street preaching. William Booth said, okay, I guess you can go ahead and do it. And so they uh, found a building, they organized an event, and they advertised it as two hallelujah females from England. I thought that was funny (laughs) to do this open-air meeting. And uh, so they start holding these meetings. At one of the meetings, uh, uh, a bunch of ruffians started a fire. And so all of these people came and gathered around to watch the fire, and they took it as an opportunity to preach. The town drunk gets saved, and he's so radically transformed that all of that it goes into all the newspapers. People start coming to all their meetings, and that's how the Salvation Army started in America. Was from this sixteen-year-old girl and her mom. You know, you <laughs> cannot argue with a transformed life. Yes, you might argue apologetics or interpretations or yep. all those kind of things, but you cannot argue with a transformed life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what we see so evident in all of in, in you know all of the testimonies and stories from the booths uh, to the people that they ministered to, their kids' lives. Yeah, you see God You transform. know, it's interesting because I was reading about Catherine Booth that she rejected the holiness movement, which was really big at that yeah. time. But she did believe in a strong inner work of the Holy Spirit. Mm. But she said, instead of it making you holy, it made you more dedicated to the Lord. I love that. Like it was a fuller commitment to the Lord. You know, there are others who thought they were getting sinless perfection and yes, they, you know, yes. that didn't work out very long, <laughs> you know, or they, and they became either in denial of their faults, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but she's like, no, I'm going to have these faults, but I'm going to 
give everything I have to Amen. the Lord. Yeah. It and, doesn't yeah, it doesn't make you otherworldly. It makes no, you better no. at serving the Lord in this world. <laughs> and you said the other girl's name was Eliza Shirley. Eliza Shirley, yep. Okay, and, and then the other <laughs> companion, doesn't that make you want to be a hallelujah woman? Yeah, I know. The hallelujah lassies or hallelujah females. <laughs> I know. What, what, what kind of movement can we start, Jasmine? Uh, yeah, I know. Let's, well, we're going to be thinking about that, and we'll, we'll tell you about it. <laughs> yes, yeah. So we'll see how that goes with us. But until then, we want to thank you so much for joining us on this edition of Women Worth Knowing. And again, to get in touch with us, here's the website. Yes, wwk at cccm.com, or you can go to women.cccm.com or graciouswords.com to find us. And we've got so many more stories in our repertoire. Oh, yes. Uh, we can't wait for, you know, this year, 2021. We mm-hmm. hope it's a better year. And we're going to just, oh, we're going to talk about doctors and singers and more writers. writers. Yep. <laughs> so much to come. So keep joining us. And until then. Uh, bye. Bye. God bless. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.